The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. One and done, minutes from the Fed's September meeting show officials grappling with rising volatility, flagging the uncertain path ahead for the world's largest economy. Bundesbank President Joachim Nagel hits back at accusations Germany is the sick man of Europe, telling CNBC at the IMF World Bank meeting that a, the current situation is completely different to the early 2000s. I was uh, crystal clear here, Germany is not the sick man of Europe, so we shouldn't compare the situation 20 years uh, uh, when it was at the early 2000s. U.S. equities advance with all three majors posting their fourth straight day of gains before attention turns to today's absolutely pivotal inflation print uh, and clues into the Fed's rate path. Elsewhere, Israel's two main political parties form an emergency unity government with the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowing revenge on Hamas. We are fighting with all our strength on all fronts. We went on the offensive. Every Hamas member is a dead man. Hamas is ISIS and it will be crushed and eliminated just as the world crushed and eliminated ISIS. And Birkenstock flip-flops stumbling double digits in an underwhelming Wall Street debut, leaving it $1.7 billion shy of its original target valuation. on the Fed in recent weeks and uh, the latest from those minutes is Fed policymakers struck a cautious tone last month according to the latest minutes. Policymakers agreed risks expanded beyond inflation with slowing growth, strikes and tightening financial markets or potential headwinds to growth. The minutes said a vast majority of participants continue to judge the future path of the economy as highly uncertain as policymakers lifted the benchmark rate to between five and a quarter and five and a half percent, where they are expected to keep it next month. A Fed governor, Christopher Wallace, says it's time to wait and see whether rates are high enough to curb inflation. He's been one of those calling louders for higher rates. Meanwhile, Boston Fed President Susan Collins says policymakers have time on their side with rates at or near their peak, but warned it may still be necessary to go higher. Uh, the noise continues. Uh, U.S. wholesale inflation figures rose more than expected in September. The producer price index increased 0.5% on the month. That is above forecast, but down on August. The core PPI also topped expectations, rising by 0.3%, with inflation pressures primarily coming from final demand goods, which surged almost 1% on the month. We've got another key print later today. In fact, even more pivotal, I would suggest. Uh, and we've got the, uh, the CPI for September is expected to have jumped 0.3% on the month and 3.6% on the year. But I've got to say, Karen, uh, the, the PPI, when I saw it, I thought, oh, the warning signs. But once again, the market looked at it, it analysed what it saw, and it said, yeah, 
it's nothing in the way of us buying the market again. Yeah, I think what we've got is the market really listening to these comments from the Fed officials that they're not hawkish at this point. They're more nuanced. Uh, they're looking at some of the big risks that have been growing. It's not just inflation. Don't forget, for many, many months, we've been talking about inflation, the stubborn rise in prices, and that central banks want to get ahead of that story so we're not unlocking a, a second wave of inflationary pressures down the track. But now what we're hearing is that, look, we're concerned about some of the unrest in labour markets, some of the concerns around those financial tightening uh, markets we're seeing in markets on those long-end rates. That's having an impact. And, of course, geopolitics, oil prices, food prices, a whole various different uh, pieces of the puzzle at this stage. So markets took that, I think, as slightly less hawkish than what they've had in recent months. And as a result, it was a commentary that they've seen over the course of this week around that long-end yield curve story. Markets seeing a, a bounce as a result, particularly around the tech-heavy Nasdaq, seven-tenths of a percent firmer. Over the course of the trading week, all major indices up more than 1% so far. Let's take a look at that uh, Treasury market uh, performance, and you can see how much we've retreated, 4.57, well off uh, the 4.88-odd level we saw the other week at 4.57. So we've very much come back on that 10-year yield. As a result, the dollar has been also in decline. One trade that we're still watching very closely is dollar-yen, 149.13, still very close to the 150 handle, but you have seen movement in other currencies. Euro-dollar, 106.29 this morning. We're up a tenth of a percent. We're 123.16 on sterling dollars, so just eking out a little bit more movement this morning. To WTI, Brent and Gold, this has uh, been an interesting one on the back of the events over the weekend, the Hamas militant attacks in Israel. We were all watching that oil price spike. We had the spike, we had a retreat, and now we've had another fall, so extending the declines. The Saudis are talking about keeping the market stable at this point, and what you've got on the price action downbeat this morning, a modest drop of a quarter of a percent, 85.60, 83.16. In some ways, we've gotten through the events of the weekend. Markets going back to where they were last week, going into those declines that you're seeing in the oil price. So uh, what we've seen uh, over the course of yesterday, Two plus percent coming off WTI and Brent, so we're just adding to that positioning today. Spot gold, though, that is interesting to still see an element of defensiveness in the marketplace. And gold has at 18.78 this morning. We're up a third of a percent. Asian markets, a quick uh, run across the region. You can see it is a strong day playing out for most of these markets. Not too much on Australia, but uh, firmer on the Chinese market. 8.10s, 1.9 on Hong Kong. Strong signal there. And Japanese stocks also bouncing yet again. Third straight day of gains and just uh, jumping off that five-month low we hit last week, Steve. Um, perfect. Um, again, beautifully surmised everything that we're looking at at the moment. But uh, just, just the one thing that I'm just drawing back to together this terrible series of events, first in Israel and, and now, of course, in Gaza as well. Um, it's not for us to, say, uh, get into the, the weeds on this at this moment in time. But, but the point is terrible set of events on both sides uh, both communities suffering devastating losses as well the thing is though the market has assumed and our, our mantra is to look at markets it seems unsavory but that's that's our job uh, but the truth of the matter is the market has i think unambiguously decided this is contained this geopolitical event is contained you've got u.s markets and global markets looking pretty sure of themselves on the front foot You've got some of the safe haven trading, just abating a little bit. You've got oil, which you just uh, mentioned there, losing pretty much the entire premium it got uh, when there were concerns. So I, I think it's fine. This is what the market does. It takes a view and it acts very binary. All I'm saying is in the same debate you and I have had about Goldilocks or, yes. or, or done on rates, I think the market has once again taken a very unequivocal view that this will not expand 
with southern Lebanon and Hezbollah. It will not expand with other major nations in the region. There will be no ramifications to Iranian oil supply, really, and, and the relationship between Iran uh, and others as well. And, and I think that, that's fine. If that's what the market decided, I'm, it's not for me to argue. But I just think that is a very binary view. And actually, it doesn't seem like there's much of an insurance policy from a lot of these asset classes to actually an exacerbation of tensions as well. The market seems to have made its mind up rightly or wrongly in three days. It's always extremely sad, isn't it? We watch these events play out. And I, I barely uh, from, can watch from, the video. I know, for, for many awful. of us, they're just uh, torturous videos to watch, right? And, you know, it's playing out on both sides. Very, very difficult. But for markets, there is often a very swift reaction. To me, what's happened in recent years, much faster reaction to a lot of these events, unfortunately, because there's a playbook. And I think what's happened uh, on the markets, you saw that oil price fluctuation, and we might still be in bumpy territory for the oil price, depending on what the Saudis do and where those production quotas end up, what the demand story also looks like away from the broader geopolitics. But where you have seen money stick, and that is around the defence stocks. So I think there is now a longer term theme that the market is saying, this may take a, a long time to transpire. And as a result, security in the region is now going to be jeopardised for a while. And what you may have, greater orders also coming from the Middle East, on top of what we're seeing from other countries that have been concerned about the security on the back of war, the war in Ukraine. Yeah, and that's very interesting because uh, defence stocks have been hot ever since February 24th, 2022. Uh, and again, it's another reason why the, the advocates of the, that positioning... I, again, it's another one of... And I, I can... It seems crass to say so, but putting defence stocks as a thematic in the same way as AI is a thematic or one of the other great trends is a thematic. And I just wonder again about valuations because it has been pushed, that idea, quite a long way. Um, all good points. We've got to move on. Um, something I don't think is a good point, it, it, and I've said this on air before, it, is people typifying the problems we're seeing in Germany at the moment, and we've talked about them a lot, as then creating Germany as the sick man of Europe. I find that, quite frankly, stupid dialogue. Um, and I think there are others in Germany who are confused about it as well, including the Bundesbank president, Joachim Nagel, who's hit back at accusations that Germany is the aforementioned sick man of Europe, telling CNBC the current situation is completely different to the early 2000s. I have to say, I do echo, um, obviously not matters what I think, but I, I understand where this gentleman's coming from. Now, the ECB governing council member also weighed in on the central bank's monetary policy strategy ahead of its next meeting. We did a lot, 10 rate hikes, so uh, 400 basis points. We started from zero, so mm. this is a lot. So now, now we have to say, see what is the impact out of uh, these uh, interest rate hikes. Mm. And I guess it's the best to wait for new incoming data, and then we will see. So it could be an opportunity to pause then? I think we should use all the flexibility we have, mm -hmm. and pausing could be one of these optionalities. But as I said, I will wait for the data, but I'm open to all what is necessary, taking into account what the data will, will tell me is the best to do. Well, let's turn to the economic backdrop. Uh, the Economist, a very famous publication, put out a piece not so long ago suggesting that Germany is now the sick man of Europe. And other people have been saying that as well. Even Bundesbank have flagged that the German economy has been growing flat or slightly negative over the last few quarters. Is Germany once again the sick man of Europe? I was uh, crystal clear here. Germany is not the sick man of Europe. So we shouldn't compare the situation 20 years ago, uh, uh, when it was at the early 2000s when it was said that Germany is the sick man. It's a, it's a completely different, different situation. So I think there are some challenges. There are some mm. structural uh, 
change is necessary for the German e economy. But if you take, for example, the labor market, we are still running the economy on full employment, more or less. So it looks not good. And I believe there is that understanding that we have to do something but we are not the sick men of Europe. But well, one of the criticisms is that the ECB have actually gone too far with interest rate hikes and that with interest rates so high, it's stymieing any ability of Germany to, to grow. What is your response to that? I think it was necessary to hike rates like this. I think what we all know is when inflation is going too far, this is the, this is the, the major obstacle for all what is necessary to achieve a certain growth level. So it was necessary, it is still necessary to bring inflation down. That is the best what we can do in the governing council to really get to that target. This is our mandate. So I believe it was the conditio sine qua non for future growth. So it's more or less the opposite. I, I think that's a great interview. Um, Juvana also spoke to Kenya's central bank governor and asked how the macro environment is impacting his country. The advanced economies are basically trying to address the issues of inflation by raising interest rates. Now for us, uh, that has impact, impacted us quite uh, negatively in the sense that uh, it has crowded out, us out of the international capital markets. And uh, equally important uh, was the fact that the exchange rate has depreciated, which has added both to inflation but as well as the, uh, the, the debt uh, burden. In addition to that, uh, domestically we've had uh, several years of, uh, of uh, drought, which have also caused uh, high, uh, high inflation. So this is the kind of this is a context that uh, we are having to deal with on a macroeconomic level. Um, I don't know what the collective noun is for central bankers, but let's go with plethora. Uh, we have a plethora of ghost, uh, ghosts, yeah, guests, I believe, uh, coming up from Marrakesh later this morning, uh, starting at 800 CET, when Sylvia will speak to the IIF's Tim Adams. Bit jealous I'm not doing that one, actually, because he's got a great line on global debt. Uh, we're also going to hear from Belgium's central bank governor and the ECB governing council member Pierre Wunsch at 9.30 CET, along with a host of other policymakers and central bankers uh, from across the world. Meanwhile, to the geopolitics, Israel's main political parties have agreed to form a national emergency unity government and war cabinet as Israeli forces prepare for a potential ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. The death toll from the Israel-Hamas war has now climbed to over 2,300 people. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the parties had put aside their differences for the future of their country. People of Israel, tonight we created a national emergency government. Israel is united and tonight its leaders are united too. We've put aside every other consideration because the fate of our country is laid on the table. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who is set to land in Israel today, said Washington will continue to assist the country. We're determined to make sure that Israel gets everything it needs to defend itself, to provide for the security of its people. Already, significant military assistance requested by Israel is on the way. We've already been working closely with Congress on this, and we look forward to continuing to do that to make sure that Israel has what it needs. Well, let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, we now have this national uh, unity ca cabinet government as we try and push forward there in Israel. Just give us a sense of what happens next from here. 
Karen, good morning to you. Well, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, alongside the Israeli opposition leader, Benny Gantz, and the Defence Minister, Yav Gallant, have formed an, a, a, a unity government, a coalition uh, together, a so-called war cabinet. And this is really important because this is Prime Minister Netanyahu essentially working to consolidate the decision-making process within the government as Israel continues to bomb Gaza and it prepares for what could be a ground operation into Gaza in the coming hours or days. At the same time, this is also important because we know that the government in Israel, the Knesset, is made up of a hodgepodge, a kaleidoscope of coalition partners that help to keep Israel's prime minister in power. It is full of ultra-Orthodox parties. It's full of right-wing members and this means that those members will no longer have a say or at least a limited say in Israel's next steps when it comes to fighting this war and that is also critical because what it means is that this could perhaps lead to additional or at least reaffirmed U.S. support for whatever Israel does in Gaza. Uh, you mentioned the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is heading into Israel, and this is also significant. The focus for him is to provide U.S. support for Israel's war, but also at the same time provide weapons and munitions and send a show of support from the West by positioning U.S. military assets into the region to ultimately deter Iran and its proxies from perhaps joining this fight. One of the greatest concerns is that we would see Iranian proxies like Hezbollah, for example, getting more involved in the situation on the ground. And that would be highly, highly negative for the outcome for Israel and, of course, the rest of the wider region as well. And, of course, this also comes as we continue to see the death toll on both sides mounting, now standing at over 2,700. That has been overwhelming hospitals and morgues on the ground. And the latest information is that more than 260,000 people have been displaced in Gaza. So while we see this war effort continuing to unfold, a humanitarian crisis also now starting to emerge. It's back over to you. Dan, thank you very much for that. And for more news on the Israel-Hamas war, you can go to our live blog on cnbc.com for all of the latest updates. Um, coming up on the show, Birkenstock loses its footing. I've got to be honest, our producers are just loving the, the foot fest of puns that is happening on this Birkenstock listing. Anyway, uh, shares slide in its long-awaited IPO. We'll get Aneta to... Uh, uh, join us with the details after the break. Uh, plus, uh, the former Alameda Research CEO, Caroline Ellison. Well, it was uh, quite a an emotional testimony, actually, from her in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. We'll bring you the latest from New York. And we're going to have plenty more from the IMF World Bank meetings in Marrakesh, including the aforementioned IIF CEO, Tim Adams. Don't miss that interview first on CNBC, coming up in 42 minutes' time. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Birkenstock, Birkenstock shares dropped in. I'm just distracted by Steve sitting here with, you know, uh, preparation for...
I beg your pardon? Doing some preparation there. I was doing some preparation <laughs> for the next segment. Yes, yes. absolutely. Birkenstock yesterday. Birkenflop. Birkenflop. We've, Birkenflop. We've had a Didn't few... Didn't flip-flop, it just flopped. It was an ugly start, ugly debut. Um, well, apparently they're beautiful shoes now. They, they've had a reinvention. Too many exposed toes. Oh. <laughs> well, there have been so many puns around, around this one, right? Now, Birkenstock shares dropped over 10% on their market debut stateside. The worst first US IPO performance for a company worth over a billion dollars since 2021. The shares were priced in the middle of the indicated range at $46, valuing the company at around $9 billion. Speaking to CNBC, the CEO, Oliver Reichert, has defended the company's valuation. The track record I've, I've created in this company since 10 years is 20% CAGR, 60% gross profit margin, and 30% plus X EBITDA margin. Okay, you, you show me any comparison to this, and then you really have to dig deep into the luxury segment to come up with a comparison. So, yes, we are very confident, and yes, our estimation for the future and the, you know, the, the forecast is always a bit more traditionally oriented. But Conservative. The insiders, insiders know. Under promise, over deliver. Good. You got it. Let's get out to Annette for more. Annette, there were some warnings around valuation around this company. Some saying, look, it hasn't changed much since its last uh, ability to tap the market. If you look at the metrics, there's not much more there. Others are saying, look, it's got the greatest uh, direct-to-customer model that we've seen from one of the retailers of late. Just walk us through what happened yesterday. Well, actually, I think the valuation was just too high. If you look at the valuation, it was 37 times earnings. So that brings them more into the corner of Hermes, which is actually uh, trading at 45 times earnings. So if you compare to other uh, shoemakers, for example, Clocks is uh, trading at seven times, Doc Martens at 13 times, and perhaps something which might be a bit more similar is the um, producer of Uggs, um, they are trading at 22nd times earnings. So just to give you an idea of how rich the valuation of for Birkenstock war, was, um, and that has been corrected now with a slide of the shares by 30% yesterday. So, of course, the CEO is very confident about like the, the, the growth trajectory, but if you look at the, the fact that in the US, the average household has already 3.6 uh, pairs of Birkenstock shoes, and the US are their biggest growth market, um, there is a question mark whether they can keep on growing as much as they did. The earnings, for example, for this year until now, they look quite good at first glimpse. Um, revenues are up by more than 20%, but actually the earnings, the, um, the net profit is actually down. So that also gives you an idea of how much uh, the cost explosion they are probably sitting on as well, given that marketing will cost them quite a lot to um, position the shoes firmly in the luxury segment. Annetta, thank you very much for setting the scene. Let's get to our next guest, who is Matt Agurs, the CEO of Iris Family Office. Matt, you were flagging up to us yesterday that there was a lot of interest that had been flagged from cornerstone investors, which potentially boded well for the company. But ultimately, investors did not want to slip into these so-called comfortable shoes. They didn't feel as though there was a natural fit with Birkenstock. What happened? What went wrong, do you think? Good morning. Thank you for having me. So looking back, even before Birkenstock hit the scene, you know, we noticed a pattern. Um, both the companies involved and their underwriters seem to gravitate towards a handful of major cornerstone investors. 
essentially sidelining a broader group, which includes investors, institutional investors like hedge funds and family offices. Now, the inherent risk with leaning on a smaller group of large investors is that you might miss out on the broader support needed once the stock begins trading. So that's the same, that's the exact scenario that played out for ARM, uh, Instacart, and Clavio. And regrettably, we saw the same narrative unfold for Birkenstock today, with their stock opening a notable 10% below the anticipated IPO price and way, way late in the, in the day as well. No doubt there's some investors that were looking at the news from LVMH yesterday about what they saw in those numbers from the, the bellwether in the luxury space. Now, Matt, I want to ask you too about the direct-to-consumer model. This has been a big one that a lot of retailers have sought to build out themselves that gets them away from the discounting models and some of the uncertainty around big department stores and other retailers. Why is this key and how does an investor think about valuing a direct-to-consumer model? Yeah, I mean, the direct-to-consumer model obviously is, is key because you go direct to the purchaser, you go direct to the consumer, and you're eliminating all of those intermediaries. And essentially, you quote-unquote own the consumer in that regard. So you know where what the consumer's needs are, and you know when they're on your website, what they're looking at, what they're browsing uh, you know, so that gives you unprecedented opportunity to cross-sell, upsell, uh, discount, run programs, and um, you know all sorts of things to to lure and, and sell to that consumer as well as uh, uh, you know as well as keep the consumer uh, coming back to you. And so uh, you know it's very important for all luxury brands and essentially all brands to go direct to consumer, which isn't really that hard to do. Uh, by way of e-commerce today. Matt, really good to, uh, that you could join us uh, from San Francisco. Look, look, I'm, I'm going to go back a stage to your first answer with my colleague Karen as well. It is bonkers for a stock in this market to be priced at 30, 30 times plus, when actually its USP is it's questionable. It is a shoe company. It is not a creator of GPUs. It is not a... a um, uh, an, an NVIDIA-type company that has explosive growth in AI. What's, what's going wrong with people's valuations? Are we just getting greedy? I mean, look, Birkenstock's a 250-year-old company, and, and there aren't that many of them. Uh, they bring with it a strong brand legacy, a vast loyal customer base, and an iconic product range. And, and, and these, uh, these intangibles can command premium valuations. Uh, so when benchmarking against industry peers, some companies in the consumer goods and luxury sectors have garnered similar, if not, if not higher, valuation multiples if they have a strong brand and growth trajectory. So it's not just looking at today. I mean, it's it's very rare to see a, you know, a product like Birkenstock, a name like Birkenstock, emerge from private, now come to the public realm and make an offering to... Uh, public investors, both institutional and retail. And so with that, the, the premium, uh, you know, may not be so outrageous, but what was really uh, disheartening today and over the last three IPOs, in fact, you know, the ones that I named earlier is the selection of cornerstone IPO investors in within the process of the IPO itself, rather than a broader base of institutional investors. Matt, and Matt. so that's sort of 
Sorry, Matt, I, I'm struggling. I, and I know that we've got, we're making a market here between us, but I just don't buy it. I mean, I, mean, I look at a, a, one of the biggest footwear companies in the world, albeit a different company. Nike trades on 24 times as well. Uh, and they can ride out any storm because of their scale of products as well. Then I look at the luxury goods sector and the premium names. Yeah, they trade at 35, 40 times, but the average of the sector trades between 30 and 13 and 20 times going forward on a, a forward PE. Buying a stock trading at 30 times plus with a sales multiple of five times as well. I get it. It's a 249 year old company, but I mean, it doesn't deserve that kind of premium to illustrious names in the sector, does it? Six times a sales multiple, actually, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, these are rich valuations, um, you know, by all means. But when you combine the brand versus you're not looking at just what the brand could deliver today, but what the brand could deliver tomorrow and the day after and, and then and then thereafter. And so, you know, essentially, you don't really see a lot of brands like that. So from, you know, if you if you split the investors into two different groups, from an institutional investor's point of view, these are groups that work to deploy large sums of capital into these companies. There aren't that many choices out there um, to go after. And so when you combine all of those elements together and the future potential and a 250-year-old name, you know, it, it, it appears to be uh, a bet that many, many investors were willing to make. Now, in this case, um, even three large investors came in, and they're, they're even mentioned in the prospectus. And so uh, large institutional appetite was certainly there, but I feel like the company during the allocation process, as I mentioned before, I know I keep going back to the same point, but to gain the support to sort of markets are, markets are very anxious these days. And so, you know, what happens on the first day or the first two weeks are kind of important to me. Now, the numbers will play themselves out. We'll see in their earnings calls this quarter, next quarter, and the years after that. So we'll see how that all fares. But the first two weeks, first two to four weeks, oh, yeah. are very important if we have more companies essentially lined up to go public. Matt, great to get your view, and it. it's nice to create a market as well. Thank you very much indeed for that, and thanks for joining us. At, uh, I don't know what time it is in San Francisco, but I'm sure it's pretty late. Thanks, sir. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.